The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. This is Dudley. Good to be back with you again. Starting a new year and uh, with all the opportunities and possibilities that come with it. Hey, a couple of things coming up I need to tell you about. Uh, Father-daughter weekend coming up February 16 through 18. One of the great things that we do out at the ranch. Daughters need to be 15. Fathers can be whatever age they want. Doesn't have to be a biological daughter. In fact, we've had men to come who several times bringing friends, cousins, nieces, whatever. It's a wonderful time, a time when men and uh, fathers and daughters learn what their role with each other is. We found that uh, there's a lots of trepidation about from fathers about uh, how am I supposed to be, uh, how am I supposed to relate to her as she grows, the different transitions in her life. And sometimes daughters don't know what dad is, uh, how they respond to dad. It, it's, uh, I just say, if you're a, a daughter 15 and up or a father that has a daughter that way, you do not want to miss this. Do whatever it takes to get there. Register, go online, get involved. Uh, the other thing is coming up in March, which is not too far off, and that is the EPIC conference held out in Prosper, Texas. This will be uh, the best conference uh, of the year. It was the last two years. It's fabulous. It's the it's talking about the story of the gospel and how it applies to all of life. Speakers are Alan Wright, Kenny Thacker, Dudley Hall, J.R. Basser, David, and there may be others. The, we'll have plenary sessions. We'll have breakout sessions. We have uh, wonderful uh, programs for the kids and uh, for, for the children. Register for the EPIC conference. I mean, seriously. Do it. Just do it. I don't want to start trying to turn to a salesman. Just do it. Okay, uh, it's been a while since I've recommended these to you. And some of you may have them, but some of you don't. From Shadows to Substance. It's a, a study of the book of Hebrews. It is the, the tendency for all of us to go back to the shadows of the Old Testament, the law and all the sacrificial system and all that. We don't really understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, how he is the substance of everything. I think it'll be a transforming study. So request that from Shadows of Substance, the study of Hebrews. You'll like it, I promise. Okay, this month I want to talk to you about the difference in a concept of God and an encounter with God. Now, any preacher worth his salt has, has a sermon on Isaiah 6. If you've been studying the Bible very much, you've, uh, you know about Isaiah 6. It is the story of Isaiah, the prophet, who had an encounter with God. And it, it uh, obviously transformed him. I want, I want to use that story as our kicking off point, beginning place, this month, as we talk about the difference in an in, uh, of having a concept of God, even believing in God, having a, a theology uh, of such, but the difference in that and having an encounter with the living God. Uh, there's so much today about 
what Christians believe and don't believe and all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm not sure we're defining Christians properly. And so what I want to talk about is those who have encountered God. And if you have not encountered God, you can't. It's, uh, it's not because he's reticent that you haven't. But some of us have concluded that you're not supposed to. You're just have, supposed to have a, a belief in him based on what you're taught and so forth. Uh, and, and then it's up to you to basically change your life. And that, that's, not, that's not biblical Christianity. So I'm going to read the text. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, that's the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard a voice, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And he goes on and tells him that the people, uh, that he's been being sent to a people to tell them the truth, but the great majority of them are not going to receive it. Now, get to that point. It's, a, it's an important point. But I, I want to set the stage here for this, uh, this story and the importance of what happened to Isaiah. Because see, Isaiah was already a believer in the sense that he believed in Jehovah, believed in Israel's God. He was uh, brought up in the family. His uh, tradition tells us that his family was connected with Uzziah, the king, who was a good king, and that he was highly connected in the political and in the ecclesial ranks and that uh, he you know he was considered a good man he was uh, he was a, a prophet he was he was coming along being taught how to walk in the ways of the covenant god of israel and so he, he believed he believed what his parents had taught him he believed what the teachers had taught he, he believed what the scriptures had said so he he, he, he was a good man he was a believing man and yet, he needed an, an encounter with God. He needed to see God in, with new eyes. He, he needed to go beyond a concept, a belief in, a, 
a theoretical understanding of. He needed to go beyond that and actually encounter the living God. And I think you can see why, why this is so important and how apropos it is today when so many, many people show little, if any, evidence that they have encountered a God that's shaken their lives. You see, you don't, you don't have to read far in the New Testament to run into somebody who, whose life was shaken. And look at the disciples. They were minding their own business. Jesus comes to them and calls them to follow him, and they follow him. And as a result of seeing him, and then their spiritual eyes being open that they would understand who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And then they saw not only the miracles he did when he was on the earth, but they saw him die. They saw him raised from the dead. They, they experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. And these were men who went out and were martyred for their faith. They, these were men who, who it was said of, they've turned the world upside down. They've shaken everything up. Well, are they just supposed to be some kind of unusual model? I mean, can anybody be a Christian like that? Should everybody be a Christian like that? Of course they should. That's the model. And, and so uh, it's important today that, that we understand what it means to actually meet the living God. Because a lot of people have met the scriptures and they've met the teaching and they've met the morality and they've met the principles, but they haven't met the Lord. You see, as long as your belief in God is a concept, then you're focused kind of on the ways, the ways, the principles, the, the way you do it, the way you live, the way you try to be better, the way you improve your morals. It produces religion. Concepts of God produce religion because it, whatever your concept of God is, your religion will flow out of it. If you see God as more like your grandfather or some people see God as like a judge, some, some see God as like a, uh, uh, a camera, a, a good friend who played football for the University of Arkansas and the one who played some pro ball, we were talking about this one day and he said, all my life, I've lived with that camera behind my head. And uh, nobody knew what he was talking about until he explained it. Now, I understood it because I had the same experience. <laughs> Wasn't as good a football player as he, but had the same experience. When you're playing, they film everything you do. They film all your technique, film everything. And when you do something wrong, it's played back and it, they go over it. And hopefully for your benefit, but it's embarrassing. If you do something good, they just go, nice play. But if you do something bad, that camera is going to catch it. And so every game that you play, whether you win or lose, you're graded by the film. And I can promise you for all uh, guys who have played athletics, particularly football, a film, the first film watching is uh, you go into it with fear and trepidation. Because in your mind, you may be thinking, oh, yeah, I made a great play in the third quarter. But all the way through, they're showing you all the defects and whatever. And so my friend said, my friend Jim said, you know, finally, when I, 
when I've encountered the Lord, I've, the, the camera went away. It's no longer a God who's, who's inspecting everything I'm doing and giving me a grade on it. I found out he's my father and he loves me and, and he's not grading me. Jesus was graded in my behalf and he got a good grade and I get the benefit. So, so, so your concept of God uh, affects, your the affects your behavior, affects your religion, creates religion. You see, uh, a lot of people, for instance, have the concept of grace. They think they understand grace and they see grace as the kind of the opposite of legalism and law and moralism. So they've lived under that legalism and stuff. And so now they they see grace as there is no accountability. There, there, there are no standards there, there, there are no goals. They just, uh, you know, it's just grace, just, just grace. Well, that's not, uh, that's not grace. When you meet Christ, you meet the one who is grace and you find out that he empowers you to live an excellent life a life that's way beyond legalism and moralism. It's a life of love. It's a life of, of sacrifice. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of glorying in another. But, but you're changed. And, and so it's not just a, a kind of a do-nothing thing. It is a being changed on the inside so that you do what you, your inner man wants to do. Uh, another concept of God is God is love. But we take our concept of love and project it on God. So God is love, which means he would never allow anyone to be uh, hurt or go to hell, of course, or to be judged or to feel bad or whatever. So God would, so we judge God by our definition of love and establish it as the idol and God has to serve that idol. Well, so you can see, you can have a concept of God as dictator or, or whatever. Once you meet God, however, though, you don't have to wonder about the concepts. When you meet him, you know him. When you know him, you're changed by him. When you're changed by him, you can never get over it because you've been shaken. So that, that's what happened here with, uh, with Isaiah. Let, let's talk about how God set him up. God set him up for change. We'll take his story. He was a, a good young man. Like I said, he had connections. Probably was some way related to Uzziah. Loved Uzziah. Uzziah was the king. Uh, at least there was st stability under Uzziah. So things were going well. And probably Isaiah had a uh, career path all laid out that was going to be pretty good. And... Evidently, he was a great communicator, which in that day, as well as today, is a great asset. I mean, uh, it's interesting today that when you hear people being introduced at conferences and whatever, uh, you know, one time you would you would introduce someone, you talk about the degrees they had, the the academic achievements they had had, or whatever, but now it's very common to hear somebody say, here I present to you one of the great communicators of our day, and then they present this person. See, it's the ability to communicate that is, has made stars out of a lot of preachers and a bunch of other people. Well, Isaiah had that. He had the television personality. He could uh, he could have his own program. So 
So he, he was he had stability, he had uh, had a good success route going. He had great uh, uh, communication abilities, and then something interrupted his life of ease. The king dies. Uzziah dies. And there's all kind of things that pop up then. It's like, who's going to take charge? And will we be overtaken by an enemy? And who will who will be the king? And where will I fit in that whole thing? Because uh, I won't be re related to the next king. And uh, so King Uzziah dies. And in the middle of that shakeup, in the middle of that transition, Isaiah has an encounter with God. God comes to him. And by the way, uh, there's there's a lot of talk today about how we need to go to God. We need to move toward God. I, I think you'll find when you meet the Lord and as you you see how he works, God is always the one coming to us. We're not the ones going to him. He, uh, he came to Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding behind a bush. He came to Noah and... Uh, Noah just minding his own business. He came to Abram, Abraham, uh, when Abraham wasn't looking for him. God is always coming toward us. When Jesus was on the earth, his disciples were out in a storm. He came to him in a storm. He's the one that's making the move. God wants to encounter us. He wants to come and get in your situation with you and reveal himself to you. Would you dare believe that? Would you just take that one statement and dare believe it, that God, almighty God, the one who created everything, the one that Isaiah encountered here that shook the temple, that God wants to come get in your situation with you and reveal himself to you. He, he, that's his desire. He longs to do that. And so Isaiah is set up by this whole thing. And so all of a sudden he's in the temple and the glory of God appears. The glory of God. What is that? The word glory means weight, weightiness. It's heavy. You see, when something is weighty, it, it creates uh creates wakes, <laughs> creates uh, quakes, creates shaking. For instance, if you have a stone, let's say you have a big stone as big as my head, and you drop it into the water, the stone is heavier than the water, and therefore the water splashes and there's a quake. There, it changes because something heavy has encountered something not as heavy. Now, on the contrary, you take a feather and drop it on the water and it won't even make a ripple. It just slowly touches it and there it is. God is the most weighty. His glory carries ultimate weight. When he moves into a situation, there's nothing as heavy, as weighty as he, and things change. There, there's, there's always a quaking. He is, he causes shaking things to happen. Now, now notice what he saw. 
Isaiah saw the Lord and just the hem of his garment filled the temple. And one of the seraphim said, his glory fills the whole earth. The earth is not big enough to contain the weightiness of God. His, his glory fills the whole earth. Now, that's good to know when your world has just been shaken, when Uzziah has died and your career path has just been canceled and you don't know what the future holds and what certainly what holds for you and the people that you are uh, you're a part of are living in, in rebellion against God and, and there could be a terrible judgment on the way. It's good to know that God is bigger than your circumstances and that his glory fills not just the temple, but fills the whole earth. Isaiah encountered a, a world that was God-ruled, God-saturated with the weightiness, the glory of God. Talking about this shaking, quaking thing, remember when God met with Moses on the Mount of Mount Sinai? And he gave them the law, but it was an encounter. God meets with Moses and the meeting uh, included a major shaking. The, the whole mountain, the whole mountain quaked uh, and people were afraid and uh, so afraid they said to Moses, we don't want that to happen again. But you see, when God reveals himself, his heaviness, his glory shakes all other glory. Uh, it, it changes things. There's a splash. There's an earthquake. When Solomon built the temple and God's glory comes to the temple, his glory is so magnificent and so pervading that the priest and everybody falls down. At the cross, when God God's glory is revealed. His glory is revealed when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the ultimate moment of glory. When he dies, there's an earthquake. The whole earth shakes and the veil in the temple is rent. You see, when God's glory invades a situation, things change. That's why it's so ridiculous for people to say, well, you can be a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to change. I mean, you're basically going to be always the same, whatever whatever your personality, temperament, scars, and and uh, problems are, you're always going to be the same. You can work on it a little bit and improve, but you're not going to change. Are you telling me when the glory of God moves into a situation that his weightiness can't change anything there or won't? That doesn't, doesn't fit with scripture and it, it doesn't even make sense. So, so the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The glory of the Lord is here. In the Hebrew, uh, there's not a, uh, not a way of saying good, better, best. Uh, what you say, you use the same word three times. If you, if you're trying to say that's the best, you say that is good, good, good. Uh, holy, when someone is as holy as they can be, when holiness has reached perfection, when it's come to its end, 
you say, holy, holy, holy. By the way, in the book of Revelation, that's what the uh, what they were saying in heaven when John was able to look into heaven. Is they saw that it was saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who created everything. And then when Jesus, the lamb, came to open the book that nobody else could open, they said, holy, holy, holy is the lamb. So this uh, this weightiness of God. Uh, there's a place in Hebrews I, I mentioned earlier about getting the study on Hebrews. There's a place in Hebrews where it talks about uh, it's quoting an Old Testament passage that when when God does something, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Things were shaken up pretty much in 70 A.D. when Israel had continued to reject God and even rejected the Messiah, and finally the the Roman government came in and the, Jerusalem was destroyed. That that was also a shaking. You, you see, when God's glory comes. There's a quaking, there's a shaking, there's a changing, there's a, tra a transformation. So seeing God for who he is, the God who fills everything with his glory, the God whose glory is above everything else, the God who, whose weight, whose worth is beyond everything else, seeing him is essential. Because when you see him, then just like Isaiah, you'll see yourself. Isaiah then said, woe is me. Now, until now, probably Isaiah, he was obvious. He, he knew about his sins, some of his sins and stuff, but he didn't really see himself the way he really was. He was more sinful than he dared believe. And yet God was bigger than he ever imagined. So he cries out. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's a man who had been glorying in his ability to speak, in his communicational skills. And yet now he sees everything that he had called an asset. He sees it as a deficit. Same thing Paul happened to Paul. Remember Paul the Apostle? He said, I was born on the right day. I have the right family. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. According to the law, I did everything right. Da, 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 da. All of these things, he said, I count as deficits because there's only one thing. I want to know. I want to know this Lord who has died, who has been resurrected. I want to share his life. So that's, that's what was happening to Isaiah. He saw himself in light of the glory of God. Now listen to me. A lot of times our repentance, our confession of sin is based on our own conviction of ourselves. We convict ourselves, well, I shouldn't have done that. That's, that's a terrible thing. And, and usually when we are convicted by the law or convicted by our own morals, on standards, our focus is on what it's going to cost us. I, man, I did that, and I, I'll probably get caught, and it, it's going to hurt me, and and uh, it's going to make God mad, and uh, so we, we're we're basically thinking more about consequences and breaking the law. When you're convicted by the Spirit, when you see God as He really is, 
you'll see your sins in light of who God is. You'll see your sins in light of his glory. You'll see that you're even the things that you're banking on for leverage or for goodness are, are self-motivated, full of selfishness. And, and you'll be crying out with, with Isaiah, woe is me. I'm undone. Repentance has gotten a bad rap. We've talked about it before. I know you've, those of you who've heard me before, know that I, I believe it's such a big word. Did you know that uh, the 95 thesis that Luther nailed to the door in Wittenberg in uh, 1517, the first one was about repentance. He said something to the fact that repentance is a way of life. In other words, as you walk in the presence of God, you see yourself in light of his glory and you, you, you don't feel bad. You're not put down, but you're always changing because he is showing you who you are in comparison to his love, his grace, his mercy. When I, when I see my sin as, as on the cross and, and what it what Jesus had to go through for my sin, that my sin is a personal thing between me and God. It's not a it's not a legal thing that I'm going to have to pay for or something like that. So Isaiah sees himself in light of the gospel. He sees, he sees his sin in light of a good God whose glory fills the whole earth. And instantly upon seeing his lips as being defiled, Instantly upon seeing that, a seraphim takes a hot coal from the altar and brings it, touches his lips, which I'm sure he anticipated it being painful, but the result was he, his guilt was atoned for, his sin was atoned for, and his guilt was taken away. He was cleansed. He was made different. God doesn't show us our sins for us to wallow in them. He doesn't show them to us for us to to regret, to, to let... No, so that he can show us his forgiveness. That's the only reason. He shows it to us so we can we can find the forgiveness in him and, and exalt in him and exalt in him and, and praise him and, and enjoy him and enjoy life because of him. So so his lips are cleansed by a fire from the altar. Now the altar is where sacrifice has been made. Death has happened on that altar. Animals have given their life. We get the touch in our lives from the last altar, the final sacrifice, the very Son of God, whose blood cleanses us from all sin. And we're touched by that. Yes, it cost him his life. Yes, he went to hell. So I wouldn't have to. Yes, it's readily available to me. And upon seeing his goodness and seeing my sin, I find his forgiveness, his cleansing, his atonement, and I, I am one with him. So, so the guilt's taken away, the sin's atoned, and uh, what happens next? Well, a lot of times we stop there. So man, that's great. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's wonderful to have your sins taken care of. But, but the story doesn't stop there. Then Isaiah hears a voice. 
And he, he hears a voice from heaven say, who will go for us? Who, who can I send? Who will go for us? Who will represent the Godhead on earth? And Isaiah finds himself volunteering. His hand goes up. I'll, I'll do it. Now, maybe one of the seraphim should have said, uh, Isaiah, you don't even know what the assignment is yet. He hasn't said to go where and to do what. Isaiah's attitude would have been the same. It doesn't matter. See, part of my salvation, part of seeing the bigness and goodness of God is that upon being forgiven, I delight in the privilege of participating in his mission. Salvation is not complete until I am back doing what Adam and Eve were assigned to do in the garden, and that is to be God's partner on the earth. So I'm not saved just to have my sins forgiven, just to, to make sure I'm going to heaven and just so I can go in the temple and worship. Real salvation concludes in being sent. If you, you don't have a sense of being sent, you, you haven't got the, the whole thing yet. You see, God restores what he intended. And so with Adam and Eve, he intended for them in partnership with him to subdue the earth. They would live in fellowship. They would enjoy him. They would subdue the earth. They would be his physical representatives. They would be going for us. That is for the Trinity, for the triune God. And so salvation restores us back to that partnership, that working with God. So I've got Isaiah says, uh, uh, count me in. I want the whole thing. You know what? I think there are a lot of people who are uh, frustrated and they're, they're trying to have another experience with God. They, they think they haven't done enough yet, whatever, because they thought salvation ended with getting your sins forgiven. Well, it doesn't. It includes being restored as God's partner on the earth to represent him. And we represent him in our particular gardens doing what we are assigned to do, which is very similar to what Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who wrote the, some of the most beautiful prophecy and poetry in, in the world ever. And certainly some of the most beautiful in the Bible. He had a special place, but our assignment's not all that vastly different from his. Uh, our assignment is to go tell a people about this God that we've met, whose glory not only fills the temple, but it fills the whole earth. And that he is so big and so good that he can forgive sin he can take away our guilt. He can atone for sin. He can restore us back to our original intent. And uh, the interesting thing for Isaiah was he was told to go and preach that. But he was also warned they're not going to hear it. The great majority of them won't hear. They have deaf ears. But that does not take away your responsibility to tell them. You are to tell them. You are to tell them by the way you live. You're to tell them by the way you arrange your life. You're to tell them by the values you have in your life. You're to tell them 
by the way you handle your money. You are to tell them by the way you raise your kids. You are to tell them by the way you embrace your responsibilities as a citizen. You are to tell them by the way you do excellent work in your field. You are to tell them by the way you relate to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are to tell them in all these ways of behavior, but you should not forget that you are to tell them with your mouth. You are to tell them your story. And you're to tell them your story as it relates to the big story. Notice what Isaiah does. If, if you want to read the, the whole book, and I recommend it highly, read it and, uh, and you'll see how God gave him, gave him the words to say to his generation to help that generation to see how they fit into the big story of what God has done and is doing in the future. That's our assignment as well. So we're told to Go, go tell them. But what if, what if that's not very successful? You, you can't open their eyes, but you can tell them the truth. It's our job to give them, give them the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's job to open the eyes and, and show them. So you say, well, okay, Dudley, I'd like to have one of those quaking experiences with God. Uh, how do I do that? Well, I can tell you God is, is not hesitant. One of the ways we see his glory, by the way, is by looking at his son because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the fullness of his glory. And as we read the New Testament, as we see pictures of Jesus being the son of God, the son of man, the lamb of God, as we see him dying on the cross as, as our sin, as we see him being raised from the grave, as we see God raising him, letting him ascend to, to the right hand of the Father and he sending the Holy Spirit, as we see all that, we're seeing the glory of God. We're seeing it in, in story form. We're seeing it. And as we see that and we say, oh God, I want to I wanna know that Christ. I want to know the one who's raised from the dead. I don't want to just read about it and believe that it's a historical fact. I, I want to encounter that, that Lord. The, the Lord has an encounter for you. It could be that your, your situation in life uh, needs to be evaluated like Isaiah. Hasn't Uzziah, Uzziah died in your life? Has, have things messed up in your life? Has your career path been messed up? Has instability entered in where you used to have stability? Has insecurity come where you used to have security? Maybe you, it's just, it's a matter of injustice. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been treated incorrectly. And God was designing that to bring you to a place where he could show you ultimate reality. I, I think in, in that kind of case, uh, in that case, think of Stephen. I'm all the way in the New Testament now. Stephen. The early church is going. This is after the, uh, after Pentecost. And they, uh, Stephen is speaking to the, the Jewish leaders. Paul is there, except he's, he's not called Paul yet. He's called mostly Saul because he was a good Hebrew, good Jew that was persecuting Christ and his followers. And, and so Philip's just a good man. He was selected by his, uh, by his uh, community of friends to be a deacon in the church. And uh, he, he, he tells a story 
and draws a couple of conclusions and they stone him. And as they're stoning him, he looks up and he encounters the Lord. He looks up and he sees the, the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And the moment he sees Jesus standing, he turns to all of those who are unjustly stoning him, persecuting him, and he, he says, Father, forgive them. Don't lay it to their charge. You see, seeing the Lord empowers us to live like the Lord. It's not a matter of just making up my mind that I'm going to try to do better. It's, no, as I see him, then once I see him as his glory is over everything and he's taken, can, taken care of everything and he is still in charge, then I am free to take my hands off and I'm free to say, I can forgive. Don't leave that to their charge. I don't have to have vengeance. I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to have the last word. He can, because we've seen him. You know, forgiveness is tough until you see the Lord like that. Because it becomes a matter of, oh, dad, gum. I know I need to forgive him. I need to forgive him because it's going to cost me a lot if I don't, because bitterness is terrible and it'll make me sick and and ruin my family and whatever. I need to forgive him, but doggone, I don't want to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him, but I'm not going to forget, and I hope God doesn't forget. Soon I hope he gets, brings the world down on their heads. Soon curses of God come. I hope, you know, you know, and I know I shouldn't feel that way. And, and, and so it gets to be tough. But when you see the Lord, then it's not so hard to look around and say, because I've seen him, it changes the way I look at everything. So the encounter with God is important. And the, uh, the great privilege we have is, is to live in the awareness of that person that we've met in Christ. So, that, so that's not just a once in a lifetime thing, a once in a, every once in a while thing, but, but constantly meeting him in the scripture, constantly meeting him in prayer, constantly meeting him in conversation with others, but constantly seeing his glory. And the more I see his glory, the less my glory matters because his glory is all that fills my soul. So I'm going to pray for you today that God will do what's necessary to meet the longing of your heart to not just have a concept of God, but to have an encounter with the living Lord. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of opening the scripture, for, for looking at a story like Isaiah's and seeing in that story the hope that all of us have of encountering you. I thank you that that story is not just for the elite. It's not just for a few. It's for all. And so I thank you that you are creating situations in our life right now that like Isaiah is preparing us for a vision of you, of your bigness, your goodness, your sovereignty, your mercy. And then as we see that, we, we know the rest will take care of itself. So I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been fun being with you. 
Until next time, this is Dudley Hall with Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.